The reading is from Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, and it can be found on page 961 of the Church Bibles. Malachi 2, beginning at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his, and why one? because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully you'll find this quite an interesting passage, particularly if you're in a certain age or a certain circumstance in life, because it'll tell you who to marry, and it will also tell you, if you like, the conditions that you enter marriage in, and how you live it out. Now, if you think about it, in order to sustain a relationship, you need to be able to trust somebody. You need to have faith in them. But to be able to trust them, you need to be able to predict how they're going to behave. So they need to make a promise on what they will do. Let's think about mortgages, for example. That's the loan you need in order to buy a house. What do you need and what does your lender need from you? Well, you need a company that won't lend you more money than you can actually afford to pay back each month. You'll also want a company that's likely to be understanding if you require a payment break because you're in between jobs. If you have a company that is pretty officious, they may well foreclose on the loan, which means you have lost your house and a lot of money and with a lot of stress. And that's why perhaps a mutual building society would be better than some foreign commercial bank. That's what you need from them. What do they need from you? They need to know what your income is. They need to know that you can pay back what you have borrowed from them. Otherwise, they'd all go out of business. They need to know what your occupation is. Are you employable? Should your company go bust? Will you easily get another job? What's your track record in paying back credit? Do you pay your credit card off each month in full and on time, or are you rather chaotic, haphazard with money? 
Do you have any county court judgments against you for not paying your debts? Have you ever been bankrupt? Tick enough of those boxes and they'll lend you the money and you will pay them back each month with interest. You have a deal. You know what each other are going to do. You've signed up to do it. You have a contract to do so. And all should go well. But if either side doesn't fulfil that contract, those promises that they have made, it could be expensive for both of you. It is all based on promises. People and organisations whose behaviour cannot be predicted cannot be easily trusted. And without trust, human relationships are impossible. And that applies to marriage too. If a marriage can be terminated on a whim, who will commit themselves to it wholly, completely, totally? Marriages without promises will always be marriages with mental reservations, vulnerable to destructive suspicions and doubts. You dare not commit yourself and all your hopes to a person who you cannot fully trust. And you cannot fully trust a person whose future responses cannot be reliably predicted. Promises are important. They're vital to any successful relationship. A promise is a voluntary decision to behave predictably, a way of making my responses dependable without destroying my human freedom of action. And that is why in the Church of England marriage service there are vows, promises which both parties make to each other in the presence of witnesses. The groom makes promises to his bride and the bride makes her promises to the groom. Not just before human witnesses, but before God himself, so that their relationship will not be the victim of fickle passions, but rather committed truthfulness of both partners involved. So I'm not thinking, am I clever enough to be able to predict her future behaviour? And she is not thinking, am I attractive enough to sustain his future interest. My wife's always telling me that men are so shallow, but they are. Although some I know will actually look at the mother-in-law to be. That's a good indicator, apparently. So no, both are thinking, can I rely on my future spouse's word? Can I rely on their promise, which is a pledge of consistency? That's what makes a relationship of trust possible. Where previously such a relationship would have been a risky gamble. In fact, in today's society, more or less a 50-50 gamble. But with God as primary witness to the promises made in the vows and our knowledge that we are accountable to him, it is looking considerably more likely that such a marriage will be successful.
Now to Malachi. God makes promises. Just as they are vital for relationships like marriage, so too promises are vital for that human relationship that we have or can have with God himself. It's necessary because God is not easily predictable. Not that he's capricious, he doesn't have temper tantrums, nor is he irrational, and he is certainly not sinful. But because his character is, is hidden from us, it is what the Bible calls mysterious, something that needs to be revealed in order for us to know it. And also because his purposes are unimaginably complex. How does he orchestrate all the various variables in the universe and in people to bring, to cohere together, to achieve his objectives without overriding my personal freedom? As Isaiah 55 suggests, no one has ever guessed what God is up to. So if we're to trust God's future behaviour, it can only be because he has made promises. And fortunately, he has. The Bible calls his promises covenants. The most significant one is the one he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 4,000 years ago. God chose Abraham and his wife Sarah to start a family. The family became a clan, the clan became a tribe, and the tribe became a nation. And through that religious and ethnic group, he would prepare the world for his arrival as their saviour. Although the Jews waxed and waned in their obedience to him and his purposes, he kept faith with them. Yes, he disciplined them, he even punished them. He sent them into exile twice, once to Egypt and the other time to Babylon. But still God hung on to his promise. And Malachi started this book with the Lord Almighty saying, I have loved you. That's his special covenant love. God is faithful. He is utterly trustworthy. We can depend on him to keep his promise. And God, in return, requires faithfulness from us. We are to love God and our neighbour. Do that and there is divine blessing between God and us and social harmony between us and others. There is God's promise, their trust and the resulting good behaviour based on that promise. Now there was an alternative way of divine displeasure and social anarchy. Behaviour that cannot be trusted because it will not be be bound by the promise. And this second route is the route of infidelity, which the Jews of Malachi's day seem determined to take. So we look, verse 10, about the infidelity of the people. The phrase breaking faith with one another crops up five times, and there only are seven verses in this passage. Breaking faith in verse 10, 11, 14, 15 and 16. The people were spiritually half-hearted and morally degenerate. Their circumstances, the long exile that they'd had in Babylon, the enormous challenge when they returned to a ruined city of Jerusalem to be able to rebuild the walls and then rebuild the temples whilst all the time the tribes around them would attack them and mock them. 
had made them come to, to doubt that God was keeping his promises. They did not really believe that he was and that he would deliver on his promise to Abraham. And so they stopped living God's way and as a consequence, they got into more trouble. As we heard last week, through Steve, that the priests who were supposed to teach the people had their disbelief and they stopped teaching God's promises were still in operation, that he was still faithful to them. And so the people became unfaithful to God. And with that biblical vacuum, then the people were increasingly unfaithful to each other. And the situation needed resolution or it would be a disaster. So in 2.10, Malachi appeals to their common father. Now, whether he means God or Abraham, we could uh, spend all evening trying to work that out. Is it a capital F or is it a small f? Well, maybe it's deliberately ambiguous. God is the source of the promise, and yet Abraham is the one through whom he first revealed it and through whom he was going to work to achieve it. And Malachi illustrates the present situation by marriage and family life. So verses 11 and 12, he's talking about their taking of pagan partners in marriage. And in 13 to 16, their divorcing of their marital partners. You see, God is not just interested in what went on in the temple with all its ritual and all the sacrifices. He expects their trust in him to be integrated into every area of their life. So it's no good going to the temple and to offer sacrifices if they then come home to their pagan wife who doesn't even believe in the same God as them and then wondering why all their sacrifices result in no blessing to them at all. And it's no good weeping and wailing in prayer at the temple and come home and then divorce your wife. God will not listen. He will not bless those who break faith with him and with one another. So we turn to examine their unfaithfulness to God and its relevance for us today. Their taking of pagan wives. Judah, he says, has broken faith by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. And that is said to be detestable to God. Sounds really strong stuff. How do we explain it? Well, no matter what your age uh, you probably are, you do probably know the name of the first British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. You might also possibly be aware of another pretty um, well-known character, a similar politician, Anthony Wedgwood Benn, or Tony Benn, as he liked to be called in later life. Now, both these politicians were born in 1925 and died within a year of each other in 12, 13, and 14, respectively. She was the daughter of a grocer. She got into grammar school and she went to Somerville College, Oxford. She entered politics and became Prime Minister in 1979. Tony Benn's father was a Viscount. He was a member of the House of Lords. He was part of the Cabinet. Tony Benn went to a prestigious fee-paying school, Westminster School, and to New College, Oxford. They were undergraduates there at the same time. She was from an upper working class background and was a conservative. 
He was from the aristocracy, and yet he was having socialist convictions. Now, if they had shacked up as students, would they have made a good marriage or not? You could say something similar to Theresa May and Tony Blair, because they also were students at the same time. They overlapped. Well, we have the benefit of hindsight. She moved further and further to the right, and he, over his political life, moved further and further to the left. He would be a real Corbynista. Their worldviews, their values, their primary focus were both very different. Would one have pulled the other in a different direction? How would they have brought up their kids? I mean, left or right? Blue or red? I think it's clear either one would have changed or the marriage would have collapsed. Well, the same observation is made by Malachi. The God of the Jews is completely different from the gods of the other nations all around them. They had less demanding religions. Who was most likely to switch religions? And what do you do, practically speaking, on the Sabbath? Can you spend Friday night having a family meal recalling the faithfulness of God in rescuing his people from Pharaoh in Egypt when your wife, your children's mother, isn't into that at all? I mean, do your kids go to the temple for religious instruction? Or do you let her teach them about her gods? Who, if, it's, if she's a Moabite, with, um, or Ammonite, I forget which, um, the god is Molech, who demands child sacrifice to keep him happy. Today, different worldviews and values between Christians and non-Christians might be expressed in how you spend your time, how you spend your money, the application of, of your uh, values to life. Do the kids go to church with dad? Or do they go off with mum on a Sunday morning? Is it football or faith building? If there's a clash of times. There's a real risk to the Jews, that uh, to the Jewish man, that he will be drawn away from Jehovah, just as there is for the Christian man, that he will be drawn away from Jesus. Which is my Malachi is very tough in verse 12. He says, may he be cut off, excluded from the tents of Jacob. Now that needs clarification and qualification. After all, that would be excluding people from the church. It would be excommunicating them. So we have to remember the context. Malachi is speaking to a particular historical situation. Nehemiah was a contemporary of Malachi's. And it seems from Nehemiah, chapter 13, that half the kids in Jerusalem, that's what Malachi, uh, Nehemiah says, couldn't speak Hebrew because they'd learnt language from their mothers. Nehemiah reminds them of the Lord's command not to take uh, pagan wives 
and offer King Solomon as an example of disobedience. He says, Among the many nations there was no king like Solomon. He was loved by God and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by pagan women. He was a bit exceptional. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which demanding. Um, Malachi's reference, chapter 2, verse 12, whoever he may be, may be a reference to the leaders of Jerusalem who Nehemiah himself tells us had started to similarly marry, take foreign wives, those of other religions. Now when the leading figures of a society embrace a particular lifestyle, it makes it so much easier for the rest of us to follow suit. The distinctive nature of the people of God and their God was at risk of dilution and distortion. Would genuine Judaism survive? This intermarrying, you see, between those of different religions risks God's whole plan of salvation being scuppered. God had been working on a plan that would prepare the world for the arrival of himself as their saviour. Through one nation, the Jews, he had been setting things up so that people would be ready for that day. He'd revealed the law to them. He'd set up a whole sacrificial system which explained how sins needed to be paid for or they couldn't be forgiven. The prophets had made predictions pointing towards the coming of the promised Messiah. All this was at risk. It wasn't race discrimination, but it was religious discrimination. It wasn't race discrimination because Ruth, for example, who was a Moabitess, converted to Judaism. No problem. The issue is loyalty to God, not what country you're from. What though of intermarriage in the New Testament, which is where it begins to kind of come home to us? Well, the historical situation has changed completely. As the gospel spread and was embraced by more and more people, then inevitably one of a couple might become a Christian and the other one might not yet become a Christian. How did they view that? Well, it is unavoidable. There's also a theological difference in that the situation has changed. In the Old Testament, God had to preserve the integrity of his people because it was a time of preparation. In the New Testament, that salvation has arrived. It has been done. And now the gospel was to be taken to others. So what is now is seen as being an opportunity it is not to, um, there is no worry here. What they're out to do is that this person who's become a Christian, he is out to kind of bring his wife to become a Christian too. Membership of the people of God was no longer to be decided by genetics, but by affiliation, by choice. So if the wife is first to become a Christian, her husband is seen not as a risk to her faith, but as an opportunity for her to share the gospel. 
for evangelism rather than for exclusion, as Paul advocates in 1 Corinthians 7, and Peter in his uh, third chapter of his first letter, where he hopes the example of a good and faithful wife will win over, by her purity and reverence, her husband. But the apostles did not encourage mixed marriages for Christians who were either not married or had become widows. So 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 7.34, when he's writing to widows, they could marry again, but only in the Lord, he says. In other words, only to somebody who is also a believer. As in the Old Testament, the apostles see it as putting your faith in God at risk because you would have, would have ranked him after your non-Christian spouse-to-be. And then there is unfaithfulness in marriage, 13 and 14. Bro they have broken faith with the wife of your youth. They were treating their wives like many of us men treat our old cars. We step back one day and we take a look. Well, she's sagging a bit in the suspension. The body works are deteriorating. The original shine has faded. Time for a new model. Time to trade her in. Maybe for one manufactured by Moab, Eden or Ammon. There was no thought in their heads that marriage too was a covenant, a promise, where a man leaves his father and mother. You know, it's a public thing getting married for all to see. There is a transfer of primary relationships from your parents to your spouse. So he leaves. He cleaves to his wife, to use the kind of old-fashioned word, but it's uh, useful because um, it's a man and his wife, so it's heterosexual. And cleave literally means to be glued to, so it is meant to be permanent. And it is one flesh. There is a unique uh, life for a unique lifelong relationship. It has a unique physical expression. Verse 15, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And the normal outcome would be children, God who is said to be seeking a godly offspring. So Malachi says, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. In other words, watch the wandering eyes and the illicit fantasies. Because, verse 16, God hates divorce. The intimacy of marriage and the experience of parenting and of being a child are designed to give us an insight into God's relationship within himself between Father, Son and Holy Spirit and his relationship to us and to us with him. Break faith with that and we would increase our ignorance as well as our grief in the damage done to each other and to any children. Nonetheless, although he hates divorce, he has clearly allowed it in the Bible because this is a fallen world. So, in Deuteronomy 24, 
Because of the hardness of our heart, God permitted divorce. He didn't actually specify the grounds, and so the rabbis used to kind of debate endlessly about it. Some were very permissive, at least as far as the husband was concerned, you could divorce your wife for almost any reason, one particular school of rabbis said. But for others, they were very limited grounds for divorce. In the New Testament, it becomes much clearer. There are two grounds for divorce, the innocent party to adultery, Matthew 19, 9, and the innocent party to desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, 15. Like the early church, God is adding more and more people with fractured lives to his Christian family today. No sin except permanently resisting God is unforgivable. Through repentance... Forgiveness is possible, and God will work to repair lives. God's, God hates divorce, though, because of the damage done to our partners, to children, to our knowledge of him, and because it is an example of broken faith, of promises not kept. Relationships depend on promises, when we treat divorce so casually, we invite collapse in relationships and in society generally. A few decades ago, some US sociologists did some research into the place of feelings in marriage. They found that those with traditional values placed duty over feelings. Such people valued virtues such as self-control, self-denial, self-discipline, self-sacrifice. So marriage for them was fundamentally about commitment, an act of the will, which one should honour irrespective of your temporary feelings. They also found that such traditional values were being displaced in the West by an attitude they termed the therapeutic attitude, where feelings take priority over everything else. People are out to find themselves. Self-realisation, self-fulfilment, self-acceptance, self-actualisation, these are the buzzwords of the therapeutic attitude. Their idea of love is a spontaneous expression of feelings between expressive individuals, Long-term commitment does not necessarily feature at all in such relationships. According to the therapeutic model, if my emotional needs are not being met by my partner, I'm entitled to ditch them. I can ditch all my other social obligations because I must find emotional independence and self-sufficiency. Any personal relationships are seen as simply a means to achieving my individualistic ends. Now I can think of people, because I've lived a long time, who over the years have done just that. And it's proved to be so corrosive to their marriage vows. It has destroyed faithfulness and they have not found what they thought they needed. You see, we were not originally made to be selfish. Love is not so much about feelings for our own private enjoyment, 
but more about a covenant which binds two people together. More a promise than passion, though passion is not excluded. People are often put off today by the marriage vows because they seem so permanent and so demanding. They are lifelong promises. For better, for worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. You know, you can gallop into saying those, but reflect on each one before you get married. Till death us do part. They seem so out of place where one's feelings are concerned. People say, I don't know where I'm gonna, what I'm going to feel like in 10 hours' time, let alone 10 days or 10 years. How I feel is very fragile, even fickle. It's no basis for a relationship. Relationships, if they're like that, become transient. Sex becomes recreational. But there is a better way, a stronger kind of love that is dependable love. And how do we know what that is? Because we have seen the covenant love of God in operation. Malachi starts with the Lord Almighty saying, I have loved you. The God who has delivered on his promises to Abraham has shown so. It was not easy for him. As Augustine of Hippo wrote, God hated us when we were such as he had not made us. And yet because our iniquity had not destroyed his work in every respect, he knew in regard to each of us to hate what we had made and to love what he had made. To save us, though, required incredible resolution on the part of Jesus. Of course, as God's son, he did not wish to be separated for the first time in his entire existence from God the Father, which was what he had to do if punishment for our sins was to be effective. So Jesus realised that he must, that's the word he uses, it is necessary, he had to go through with it, right the way through to the cross. That is the love of God at work, not sentimentality, a robust demonstration. Jesus might have said, I love you and do not intend to stop loving you. I will give my very self for you. And we emulate him in our marriage relationships not fundamentally because of romantic sentiment or even sexual passion, but by a strong, endurable covenant. That's what God means and demonstrates what love is. Not so much a feeling, but a promise. So Malachi ends this chapter in verse 16 by saying to us, guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith, not with your marriage partner, nor with your God. Be faithful to the point of death, the Apostle John writes. And God says, 
and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do uh, want to register this acute observation that you reveal through Malachi. And we pray, whatever state of life we're at, whether we're single and we think about the possibility of marriage or whether we're married, we pray that uh, the wisdom and truth taught here, we would be wise enough to adopt. Amen.